marriage. That blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. These are, of course, the famous lines from The Princess Bride, the movie The Princess Bride. Uh, there was a recent uh, rumor that someone was thinking of remaking it, and Carrie Elwes, who plays, I know, yeah, said, uh, there are a shortage of perfect movies in the world It would be a shame to ruin this one. Just thought, if you've seen it, you know where that's from. Peter Cook. Peter Cook was the veteran British comic actor who played the part. The role in the credits is titled The Impressive Clergyman. <laughs> what a great title. And the movie's been out for a few decades now, so there's no spoilers if you haven't seen it. Uh, I do encourage you to do so, but um, I'll give away a little bit of it. The marriage that he performs is a sham. The Princess Buttercup does not wish to be wed to the man that he is performing the marriage to. And during the ceremony, her true love, Wesley, is storming the castle. And critically, the evil groom, Prince Humperdinck, the character names are great in this film. <laughs> Prince Humperdinck makes the impressive clergyman skip over the do you take this man, do you take this woman part of the ceremony. Say man and wife, he keeps repeating, because he can hear them storming the castle. Say man and wife until the clergyman does so, man and wife. And it turns out, of course, that this matters a great deal because the I do is not said, the marriage is not valid. I like to think that the impressive clergyman knew this, that Peter Cook's character knew that if he skipped over the actual consent, the marriage wouldn't be valid and Buttercup could instead make a free choice to marry or not whoever she wanted and to live a life she wished for. He was playing a part, acting like a doddering old person, but actually tracking very carefully, secretly clever. I like to think that anyway, because the I do is the essential part. It is the covenant. It is, I tell couples when we plan the ceremony, the part where they affirm that they know what they're getting into, and they freely, without compulsion, agree to this covenant of marriage. Covenant is our theme for September, and if we're going to talk about covenant, we should talk about marriage, that dream within a dream. I tell them the couples I'm about to marry who come in all kinds of types, men and women and non-binary folks in their 20s and in their 70s, rich folks and poor folks, I tell them that the consent part, the I do, is the most important. When the witnesses sign the license, what they are signing says, yes, I saw them say I do, and they did it freely. They knew what they were getting into, and they agreed to it. Yeah, about that. <laughs> the knew what they were getting into part. <laughs> Truthfully, only some of the people who are getting married for the second or third time really know what they're getting into, and then only barely. Marriage is the archetypal example of a covenant for good reason. A covenant must be expansive and living and breathing and capable of adjustment. A covenant is a promise. As we said last week, when it came to the church to move together, to not be static together, but to move together. It's hard. It's beautiful. 
It's worthy of effort, but it is no idol, and it is not necessary for happiness. Indeed, sometimes it gets in the way. Some are healthy, some are not, and some it depends on the day. I've been married once, and I hope one day to be married again, and I hope it'll last all my days. Mark Twain called a second marriage the triumph of hope over experience. <laughs> and looking around this room, I know, oh, hold on just a second. I know that there is a lot of hope, even though there's a fair bit of experience, too. There we go. Oh, too far. I'll go back to that one. I performed maybe 100 marriages over my career and accompanied dozens of friends and congregants and colleagues through their troubles in their marriages, some of which moved to a stronger union, some of which moved to disunion, and some of which continued to be troubled in one way or another. I've thought a lot about this institution, and I've had many conversations with others about whether or not it is hopelessly heteronormative and cannot be saved, and I have also been very proud of the work that I and you have done to make sure that the state recognizes with full equality the marriages of couples of the same sex. I'm intrigued by marriage patterns of how the average age of a marriage has risen since the Second World War for women from 20 to 27 over two generations. How the increasing economic power of women has reduced the number of bad marriages in unambiguous good and how the economic and stress pressures on parenting in particular have stressed too many marriages, and how we keep century after century redefining this covenant and what it means. It is both deeply personal and deeply social. It is about us and about something more than us. The covenant over time creates something else, something that is more than the couple, something that has its own power and presence, something around which they unite, and they and others, friends, family, children, if they have any, society, the government and schools and history, something around which people connect and organize. This other thing, this other covenant, has its own momentum, a kind of gravity which pulls objects into its orbit. Robert Bly calls this the third body. And I love that. The marriage itself is the third body, the third body they share in common, which they have promised to love, as well as to love each other. This is what a covenant is, a third body. Or to use another metaphor, it's the table around which we sit. It connects us in our individuality to something and someone else. It is the covenant in which and for which we breathe and love. There are marriages in which that third body, the covenant between them, is deeply troublesome. When it is not love. When it is violent, painful, and it is not worthy of breathing life into. There are marriages when that third body never really becomes real. When the time and energy it takes to make it real never really happens because of circumstances of work or children or both or something else. And it's some people living in a house together and sharing chores, which, you know, could be worse, but isn't great. And there are times when the third body is strong for a while, but withers, 
when it can't keep up with the changes in the other two, and despite best efforts by one or the other party, cannot be resurrected. Eventually, someone must call it. These things are all real and true, and part of spiritual wisdom is to recognize when this is the reality, when the and whether the covenant can come alive for the first time or come back to life in a new way or not. And unlike some other traditions, we say here that there is no shame in seeing what is before you. We want everyone to take their promises seriously enough to try when trying is wise, and we want everyone to take their promises seriously enough to know when trying is pretending and when it's time to stop. Because... And I believe this because I've seen it among some of you and others that when the third body is alive and well, when a covenant is real and vibrant, there are few sources of greater joy. So you should have that. When that kind of love, the love that is loyalty to the whole and not just to the sum of the parts, love that breathes and moves and makes the world better, when that kind of love guides us, it cannot be quenched. It is a love that should be fed and grow and intended to with purpose and care. The line from our anthem today, Many Waters Cannot Quench Love, is from the Song of Solomon in the Hebrew Bible, one of the sexiest books in the Bible. Okay, not, not one of, that would be. It's the sexiest book in the Bible. <laughs> and yes, a lot of it is about young love and about those doe-eyed beginners who do not know what they are getting into. But there's a reason that the elders and the scribes who put the books together to make up Holy Scripture included it. Because that feeling of connection and passion and joy, the confidence that many waters cannot quench love, is worthy of celebrating and remembering. It is worthy to remember the feeling of joy and passion, the birds and the flowers and the fire, worthy not just to remember, but to cultivate it. It's included because the third body needs attention. The affection of others, if it is worthy of love, it must be loved. Playfully, passionately, with whimsy and humor and depth. Are you ready for the practical part of this sermon? The to-do list? If you are in a marriage, or if you know someone who is, and sometimes they ask you for advice, or if you think you might be in one someday, here are some things I have learned from books and stories through long conversations and bitter days and joyful ones, which might be useful when it comes to the care of the third body and when it comes to feeding the covenant. And these things work in any kind of relationship. You might have to do a little translating, if you want, for friendship or other things as well. One, date night. Years ago, a couple in this church who had been married for some 60 years at that counting gave me that advice. Take date night once a week, they said. I said, oh, sure, that sounds nice. I didn't take it as seriously as I should have. Studies are clear that the greatest happiness comes not from things, but from experiences. And it is through experiences and through intentional time that we feed the third body. I know, especially if you've got little kids or if you live away from family that can take care of those little kids, that this can be hard. But based both on data and on antidote, I think it is vital. When you have date night, even if it's just at home with just the two of you and the TV off, 
and the distractions somewhere else, that's when it's actually not just the two of you. Because the third body is present. The covenant is invited to the table and a space made for it. So do it. You might think, we're not worthy of such a thing, but you are. And if you are single, you should have date night too, by the way. Even if it's just you, and I'm serious about this, take yourself out or stay in with a favorite book or a candle or a meal that you enjoy. You may think, I'm not worthy of such a thing, but you are. Cultivate your affection for what matters to you and matter to yourself. Two, authenticity. Be yourself and love the other people in your life for themselves. Love yourself for yourself. Be real. Everybody is different. We all have our own quirks, our hurts, our longings. We have different motivations, ways of thinking and expressing our feelings. We have pet peeves and favorite indulgences. We have our own love language and our own Enneagram style, our own history, our own triggers and phobias and private jokes. With most friendships or social interactions, we can sort of conform to the moment for the time that we're in that space. But in a marriage, inauthenticity doesn't work. You can't fake it for that long. And part of the covenant is honesty and respect for difference. Your partner doesn't need to think and feel and do like you do to be worthy of love. You don't need to think and feel and do like your partner to be worthy of love. But you should know what those differences are and respond to them. Oh, they're stressed. I know that means they need, to be, they need me to distract them with stories about my day. Oh, I'm stressed. I'm glad my spouse knows that means they need to leave me the hell alone for a little while, and then at the appropriate time, bring me snacks. <laughs> you know someone well enough, you know how to respond. Respect and care for difference is essential to a healthy partnership and a chance to practice for the world we share with many others who are all different in their own way. This is one of the essential differences between covenant and merger. Covenant recognizes that we are not the same and that we are different. And it doesn't judge one quirk as better than another. We all have our own quirks. That accepts and welcomes these differences, at least 90 or 95% of them. Not differences when it means I get to have my way all the time or disrespect you or ignore you. That's not what I mean. I just mean letting each other be each other. That's covenant. Three, be kind, rewind. Do people under a certain age in the room know what I mean when I say be kind, rewind? Well, there'll be a day when that won't be true. You have to rewind the videotape before you return it to the blockbuster. Do people know what a blockbuster is? Actually, the truth is you don't actually have to do that. I worked in a video store one summer in college and we had these high-speed rewinder machines. It took about one minute per tape. We had four of them, put them in. And a lot of people were not kind. I have to tell you, they did not rewind. But for covenant, be kind, rewind means something else. Be kind and respond to each other. 
The Gottman Institute, which studies relationship, has advanced the idea through extensive research and observation uh, that healthy covenants include a serve and volley. You say something, I respond. You express a need or a joy or an observation. It could be trivial or important, doesn't matter. And I respond. Tell me more. How can I help with that? That's interesting. That makes me think of this. Serve and volley. Serve and volley. It matters less what the response is than that I respond with some measure of kindness, noticing. When this isn't there, their research shows that you know when there's serve and nothing, somebody says something, there's no response, or there's critique back, but often it's just silence. And then what happens is the first person stops serving because you're not getting a volley back. When you serve, it's a bid for connection, and that's vulnerability, and if you don't get a response, that hurts, and so you stop. And that is the death of covenant. Be kind, respond. Be kind, respond. Our deepest human need is for secure attachment, to be noticed, to be seen, and to be appreciated for who we are and to matter to others, whether that's a partner or friends or family, to be noticed. There might be folks in your small group at church or colleagues at work. It might be your dog. Dogs are actually really good at this. It could be your cat, who usually do not have the same skills as dogs. <laughs> But you never know, some are different. But we want to be seen and noticed. Just little things make a big difference to be heard. So all these three things, be kind, respond, authentic welcome of difference, intentional time away from routine, all these things are ways about taking time to notice each other, to be noticed and seen. And every covenant, needs these things, whether it's a covenant of marriage or a covenant of friendship or a covenant with an, within another community. We need to intentionally spend time, welcome difference, and respond to each other with kindness. These three acts make a covenant real. They make marriage not an economic arrangement but a source of meaning and joy. They make friendship not just convenient but life-changing. They make a church community not entertainment, but a home for the soul. When you are sinking down, when life is hard, or when life is good and full of joy, we need each other. That wondrous love gathered round to which we sing and give thanks. Let us sing together, what wondrous love is this?